Three, two, two one. one. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Parliamentary Procedure with Chris and Victor. My name is Victor. And I'm Chris. And today we're actually talking about not the United States. We're talking about the European Union. So first we want to go through the basic overview of the European Union, how it came into existence, and then what are the institutions of the European Union. And then we will dive deep into the parliamentary procedure of the European Parliament. Chris, you want to start us off? Sure. So first off, basically, what is the European Union? Uh, most of you probably at least are familiar with the term the European Union. Um, maybe you've been to Europe and you've seen the euro, the, like their, their currency, or you've heard about the European Bank, or you've just you know heard about the European Union just generally in conversation. But essentially what the European Union is, is a supranational um, federation of European nations that join together through a series of multilateral treaties that effectively operate as a single, again, supranational organization. So I guess the simplest way to think about it is that it's sort of like what the United States was under the Articles of Confederation, where it's a relatively loosely organized set of sovereign nations that all kind of operate together under certain circumstances for mutual sort of benefit. Um, except, except in this case, I would say the circumstances of operation are probably stronger for the European Union than the Confederation. There's probably some stronger agents there. Yeah, so, yes. So, it, I guess on the spectrum between what we have today in the United States, which is a, a pretty well-centralized um, federation, although still there's an element of uh, federalism, and the Articles of Confederation, which was sort of far looser, the European Union, in certain cases, especially in, in the way its administrative state works, is closer towards the um, modern-day United States system, but in other aspects in the sense that they're still extremely robust and important um, national legislatures, and the people who actually live in those states really consider themselves members of Spain or members of Italy or formerly members of the United Kingdom. Uh, but they also are technically also members of the European Union. Um, but I, wouldn't, I think there are very few people who consider themselves just pan-Europeans, uh, and most people consider themselves members of their constituent nation. But those things are also sort of changing and coalescing as we move forward. Uh, as I mentioned, the European Union is made up, it's created through a series of treaties. Um, so unlike the United States, where we have these sort of conventions where we sit down and we write like one document, and that's just, we call it our constitution, or we have the Articles of Confederation, here, the European Union actually grew out, out of a series of different sort of organizations. It started as the European, I want to say, coal uh, and steel community or something. It was a, basically a trading community that sort of consolidated the way that certain heavy industries were built. And then over time, treaties packed on more and more powers to it. So today it has a full sort of parliamentary structure and executive structure. It even has uh, diplomatic and sort of you know, the full, what you'd expect to have from a government. Most of those functions, it even has court systems, and we'll get into all of that a little bit as we cover these basic institutions. So, uh, Victor, do you have any other thoughts on sort of what makes up the basic uh, structure of the European Union? Or at least yeah, I think it's a, it's a number of bodies that were agreed to in treaties, and from these treaties you have a number of core institutions that basically... <laughs> underlie the structure of the European Union. And that's really what the European Union is. Uh, it requires actually some deal of 
cooperation between the different states that are part of the union. So, for example, those states have to uh, affirmatively, essentially, sometimes just legislate on certain issues that the European Union dictates. Other times, those states have to fo follow or allow the rules that the European Union made, for example, through its legislative process, and not necessarily stop them from enforcing those rules. So there's a number of things that the European Union does that is reminiscent of the United States, but certainly it's a weaker union. The states are free to leave the union at any time they desire. Huh. With a certain amount of difficulty, as we're seeing. But but yes, of course, once you've grown and accustomed to all the tariff measures that the European Union has, all the other sort of free trade between the states of the European Union, it might be difficult to leave, but it's certainly a right of the member state to leave the European Union. There is a weaker justice system. For example, there's no, there's no like centralized European courts. For the most part, the European courts that do exist are generally appellate courts uh, over limited issues. Um, so, for example, um, like appeals to the European court, for example, let's say, is typically done against the state that you're appealing from, even though, for example, the original case might have started as a civil case between two parties in a state you would then basically be appealing to the European Union for a violation of your European rights by the state in that process. So essentially, the appeal becomes essentially a different, gains a different character. And that's what distinguishes the, the European Union from the United States. Yeah, another anyway. key feature is that the European Union, unlike the, uh, the United States, doesn't actually have a single military. It still has use of its sort of state militaries, but uh, just sort of to foreshadow for things to come perhaps in the near future, um, the European Union has regularly attempted to pass treaties that would create a standardized European army. Um, there are sort of co... Uh, there are, at least I want to say, perhaps units that co-mingle between different branches, but that's sort of one of those big things to keep an eye out for because one idea of the European Union, at least from the internal, how some of the states in the European Union feel is that the European Union could be Europe's way of sort of standing up against uh, American and Russian and Chinese and even sort of other developing nations like India perhaps, um, sort of standing up against these as its own sort of still relevant part of the world. Because uh, when you collectivize all of the European Union, um, and I'm not sure if this figure is right with both Brexit, but they're about, I think, a 400 million um, person strong uh, union, and they have, they would have an extremely uh, robust sort of economic weight behind that. So there are some geopolitical concerns that are developing um, as as we speak and as we kind of uh, live, especially given the way that the world is looking increasingly fractured these days. So um, I guess now we'll move on to the basic structures of the European Union, uh, or at least the basic sort of institutional structures. Like Victor mentioned, um, what really defines the European Union is these institutions. They're kind of what tie, they're what gives relevance to the fact that the European Union exists. So there's a reason why people from Italy and Germany uh, can cooperate and how they can cooperate are through these institutions. Um, so for our purposes, there are really kind of, I would say, maybe three main institutions, at least within the, uh, uh, well, 
three to four institutions, depending on how you want to look at it. Um, there's the European Council, and this is a pretty interesting um, sort of institution. It's composed of the heads of states of all the member nations of the Union, um, and it's chaired by, like a lot of these uh, institutions are, there's a rotating presidency, so every set term they'll switch, a different head of state will head the um, the council, and they meet at four four times a year at these regular summits, and it doesn't really have any sort of legislative powers, but as you can imagine, when the heads of states of all of these different nations come together, it's in a very... It, it helps set agendas, basically. It helps determine sort of high-level policy about how we're going to really try to navigate this sort of unwieldy vessel going forward through time. Um, do you have any thoughts on the European Council, Victor? Yeah, I mean, it's essentially, I guess, I guess it's closest to the to the United States Senate, at least, at least its core, I guess, foundations, because at, at some point the United States Senate was essentially elected by the legislatures of each state, so they were sending essentially a representative from each legislature to the national body. In this case, the European Council is composed of essentially the government of each European country, and generally in a lot of European countries, but not all of them, this is essentially the government that's essentially decided by their parliament or their parliamentary system. And as such, essentially, it's the legislature electing the representatives to the European Council in general. So, of course, it's not true for all European countries, where some countries have a semi-presidential system, where this might not be exactly the case. But in general, um, there is a really this core similarity between these two groups. Yeah. So, do you want to start talking about the other core institutions, Chris? Sure. So, um, another major one is um, there is the European Commission, and this is, I guess, the equivalent. It would be a within the American system. I guess it's the equivalent of the president in the sense that it is the executive or sort of branch of the union. And we're going to go into more details about what the European Commission does as we go through the legislative process later in this episode and some of the parliamentary procedure. But effectively, what it does is um, it can propose legislation. Uh, it can sort of figure out how to allocate the union's funding. And it is sort of the diplomatic and sort of the it represents the union internationally at, at various different levels. Um and it's essentially composed of, as you might imagine, given the name of a commission, it's composed of 27 commissioners, or effectively one commissioner per member nation, and also, like the, uh, the council, it's headed by a president. Um, and then each of these commissioners, we're not going to go into too much detail in this episode because it doesn't really necessarily relate to the parliamentary procedure, but just for your reference, these commissioners are each tasked with managing different policy portfolios. So... One of them might be tasked with something like fish and wildlife. Um, another might be tasked with like languages, because in a union composed of a bunch of different countries that have their own sort of, each of them ha might have their own distinct language or several. Um, this can be a big issue. Another one might be something like trade. So each of these commissioners is going to have a pretty uh, large portfolio or small, depending on how the president allocates them. 
and they're kind of in charge of overseeing these and perhaps shaping legislation that might get proposed in other venues. Um, yeah, so then we have the European Parliament, and this kind of rounds, th this is, as you might imagine, given the name, it is the Europeans equivalent of our Congress, sort of. I guess it would be, the, the direct parallel might be more apt to say it. it's the equivalent of a uh, House of Representatives. But it's composed of MPEs, uh, MEPs. Yeah, it's composed excuse of... Excuse me. Sorry. Mem <laughs> it's MEPs. I <laughs> members of the European yeah, so Parliament. It's so of members of the European it, Parliament. Yeah. Sorry, Victor. These members are elected by a method decided by each individual European state. However, at the same time, most of the states have decided to go through a method of proportional representation where you vote for a particular party generally to for free member of parliament. And then all of these members come together and they essentially have these large coalitions that essentially are related to some kind of ideological type of grouping in the European Parliament. Um, these members are elected every five years and there's 705 members of the European Parliament. Yeah. And uh, so the way that they're sort of... So as Victor said, that they have so 700 and five um which actually when you think about it so how many uh congress people are there in total i guess there are what, some there's 535 plus plus the district representatives which add six if you count them so it's i i guess you could say it's significantly larger than our congress and that's counts both the both houses so I guess one way of thinking about it is it's slightly more representative and because there are more, I guess, representatives per individual or at least citizen. Um, but then some interesting things to note are um, sort of like our system, their system also has a roughly, the way that these members are allocated is sort of a rough proportionate system to relative population, right? So... Um, even the smallest states like Malta or Cyprus, which are very tiny island nations, still get about six um, members, whereas Germany, for example, has something like 96 members. So it's kind of like how California has an ungodly large uh, congressional delegation, whereas some place like Delaware, not so much. But still, there's this cap. So Germany actually has the most number of members it could possibly have. Uh, and if you if you essentially are at the cap, your additional population doesn't grant you any more representatives to the European Parliament. Right. Uh, and Victor, do you want to tell us a little bit about, so I feel like I mentioned a little bit how, at least when we were talking about the commissioners, so there can be some pretty significant language barriers. So do you want to touch on a little bit how the sort of, how language affects how the Parliament acts? Yeah. So essentially the way that, European Union came about was from a bunch of different member states. And all of those member states internally have different languages because essentially the history of Europe is littered with different people having different languages in the European Union. As a result, when these countries all came together, they all had different languages in their home countries. So, of course, they wanted to continue being able to use their languages, for example, for European Union-wide laws and similar. 
As a result, every European member of parliament has the right to speak in any of the 24 recognized European languages. And essentially all laws and regulations passed by parliament or the European Union as a whole must essentially have a version that's official in a particular language. So each MEP is also allowed to speak any of these languages during the parliamentary session. And all other members of parliament are entitled to hear a translation of their speech in their own language. So what this results in is actually a large part of parliament is just associated with translating services, essentially. So every member of parliament is entitled to speak any of these languages. Any other member of parliament is allowed to hear in any of the languages. So a large work, about a third of parliament's uh, employees work in language-related duties. Okay, well, I have a question then. So you're saying all of the languages in the European Union have to be represented. What about languages like, say, I don't know, Romance, which is, I guess, actually, I don't think the Swiss would be in there, so I don't think we have to worry about that. Any, any language that's considered an official language of Europe okay. has to be represented. Okay. And, I mean, just if, we're going to talk later about the court system of the EU, but, for example, um, you can't have this idea that you can look at the text and determine the meaning if the text means different things in different languages. So, because... So the problem of translation kind of kills textualism? Is that what you're telling me? Yes, essentially, if the text means different things in different languages, you can't use the text to determine the meaning of certain legislation. Because all languages have to be on equal footing in the EU. All official languages. I feel like... I feel like that could pose some interesting interpretive questions, or it could change some of the rules of construction for for statutory sort of interpretation. But so moving on, a related sort of, if we're going to call the European Parliament sort of the equivalent of the United States Congress, then we're going to say that the Parliament itself is most apt to be called the House of Representatives. Then what might be termed the Senate? Is and this is going to be a little confusing because we already mentioned the word once, but there is a European Union Council of the Par European Union <laughs> Parliament Council, and this is distinct from what we just mentioned ago a moment ago, which is the European Council. Now, this this Parliament Council um, does serve a legislative function, and instead of being constructed of the heads of states of the member <laughs> states, it's composed of the government ministers of each of those uh, states. So, like, the foreign secretary uh, of certain states um, or the sort of minister of defense, these people might actually sit in the council. Um, and what this union, what this sort of institution does is, and we're, again, we're going to go into more details as we discuss the actual sort of parliamentary procedure of how legislation gets passed. Um, they act essentially like a sort of upper house of the the legislature they they have sort of again they don't have a ton of executive authorities they don't really have a judicial role they have a legislative role and even that legislative role is somewhat curtailed because they can't really propose legislation per se but they have sort of a say on how um legislation gets drafted in its final works uh, Victor, do you want to say something about this? Yeah, I mean, yeah, this is this other kind of legislation body. This is, once again, body that's reminiscent of the United States Senate, but in this case, it actually has legislative power. Um, once again, 
all members are for most European states the members of this body are chosen by this by essentially their parliaments or their legislative bodies and they're subject to essentially the will of those legislative bodies yeah I mean so one thing I think all of our listeners should understand about the European Union is it is nothing if not needlessly complicated and it has uh, it's for example there are like three different capitals of the European Union depending on which institution we're looking at so some of the institutions are based in the Hague some of them are in Brussels some of them are and I want to say Luxembourg perhaps or one of these small sort of micro states but one thing to keep in mind throughout is that the European Union is sort of like the ultimate government by committee Uh, so just if, if at any point it seems like we're throwing out a lot of different like strange terms and there's just a profusion of these organizations that's um i think probably one of the biggest drawbacks of the european union and certainly uh, one of the biggest things that a lot of people living within the european union can sometimes complain about and that they kind of feel a little bit isolated from uh the way that the actual union functions also and i'm not sure if we touched on this clearly but just as a just to clarify so whereas the european Union's Council is sort of, again, like Victor said, it's going to be appointed by the legislatures of um, the member states themselves. The the parliament is directly elected by the people in those states. So you can sometimes get some pretty strange sort of um, parliamentary delegations. So like in England, for example, or rather the United Kingdom, when they are still actually participating. they sometimes their main political parties wouldn't really contest the European election. Um, so you would get weird fringe parties capturing a large number of the seats in Parliament. Uh, so, all right. Now, so some other institutions. So, like I said, so those are sort of the core institutions. So just, again, a reminder. So that's the European Council. And this is the first thing we mentioned is composed of the heads of states. This is kind of like the Council of Governors in the United States. I'm not sure if that's the exact term for the United States, but effectively, if all the governors showed up in one room and were having a chat, that would be the Council of Europe. It's a policy-setting body and not much more else than that. But obviously, because it's a whole bunch of sovereign heads of state, it's a pretty important body. Now, then there's the um, the sort of actual legislative bodies of the European Union. These are the European Parliament and then the Council of the European Parliament. And if we want to analogize these to the United States, we would say the European Parliament is our House of Representatives and the Council is our Senate. And then finally, we have the European Commission, and this is the actual executive arm of the Union. You might think that the European Council, which is composed of the heads of states, would have executive power, but no. There's a commission that has it, and it's sort of just a way to remove power from the heads of states and sort of have a people whose job it is to be European-focused. Um, now, to get on to some of these other institutions, though, we're going to touch on these a little bit faster because they're not really the main subject of our, uh, our discourse today. But So one, there's the Court of Justice of the European Union. Um, and as you can imagine, this is sort of the equivalent of our Supreme Court, although perhaps not as important. Um, so this court is the highest court of appeals in the Union, and as such, it has the ability to interpret the Union's laws. It can resolve conflicts of the Union law and national laws of the Union's members. 
So, for example, if the union passes a law that says, like, or attempts to regulate sort of your pollution emissions and the member states don't have such laws or they have a law that says something else about how you have to regulate it and those are decided to be in conflict, then typically the union's law is going to prevail over the national law. Um, it can also hear cases, as Victor mentioned a little bit earlier, um, it can hear cases brought against members of the union um, by individuals um, for sort of issues of European, I guess, I can't, European rights, but the equivalent of human rights, but within the Europe, within the European Union. Um, and the Court of Justice is itself divided, in, and we're not really going to go into the distinction too much, but there's a Court of Justice and then sort of a general court. Um, Victor, do you want to talk a little bit about how they actually sort of uh, develop their case law method? Like, is it sort of... Yeah, so the council seems to abide by a common law method. Um, there's typically panels of judges, so not all the judges hear the cases, but essentially there's like a panel of a number of judges. And additionally, as I said before, due to the requirement that all languages are equal in the European Union, you can't just use a language of one of the statute, the statute regulation in one country to determine the meaning of it. If it has different meanings in different languages, and of course this, of course, people who work for Parliament, people who work for the European Union, try their best to make sure the meaning is equivalent. Like, if there's actually any differences in meaning, you cannot use one particular language to determine that meaning. Right. I feel like that's a pretty, I mean, granted, like I said, this isn't necessarily the main focus of our, our uh, conversation today, but I feel like that is actually a fascinating uh, consideration because, like, that's just not something you really have to worry about in the United States. Our legal opinions are written, for the most part, uh, in English, maybe a little bit of, like, law French if you're really fancy, or some Latin, but those are going to be defined terms of art, and it's actually really important, like, we have whole sort of rules of construction that say like how things should mean just based on some of the language. And of course there's the entire textualist and to a certain extent originalist issues where we, we spend a large amount of time trying to figure out what exactly the statute means. And if you can't, you can't fall back on, well, here's the plain meaning of the text because you have the text in like three or four different languages to, but actually more than that um, considering, but, you can't really say, well, oh, well, the, the the law says X. Obviously, you can if you can just read and know basic English, that you know it doesn't work like that. You actually have to kind of consider what did the legislative intent, uh, what is the legislative intent of the statute. I feel like becomes far more important, and that can open the door to a lot more. Uh, it opens the door to a lot more of a range of interpretive methods. I think so. Of course, you can still look at the text if the meaning is the same in all the languages, but right. But I think that's, yes, but I, I think it kind of, it destroys a lot of the initial, the premise of textualism where we can clearly understand a plain meaning because some ling like obviously something can be directly translated into different languages, but you know, I think it's fascinating. I'm sure if, if anyone wanted to ever dive into that and look closely and you had a command over enough languages, that could be really something worth looking into. Um, the next institution on the top of the course is that the European Union has a court of auditors. Now, this isn't necessarily so much a court in the sense of a court of justice, but it's a 
it's a body of auditors basically so it actually performs audits of all of the um institutions of the union is uh looks for financial and sort of compliance uh audits and makes sure that the members of the union are a not you know being too uh, spendthrifty and b are actually following the standards and the policies set out for them um I kind of find this fascinating. I don't really know of a direct equivalent in the United States. I guess there are inspector generals for most of the executive and independent agencies, which might be close. But to me, this is just a, a very interesting and kind of good idea for organizing government. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, also, it? I think it's great because it's in, an independent agency, essentially. And it's like independent in the idea that it's like an, essentially an independent branch, like it's an independent institution. So it doesn't have to necessarily go by the whims of political leaders who might, for example, try to hide things or similar things. So I think it's a good institution. Um, so the next thing up, and this again is something that, you know, an entire episode, maybe not with a parliamentary procedure, doc, a, a podcast, but certainly just a general politics and economics podcast could be discussed about, but the European Central Bank. Uh, this organization, as you might have gathered from the name, is the Central Bank for Europe, uh, much like, I guess, I don't know, Victor, would you say the Fed is the, this would be equivalent to the Fed? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is the Fed, Federal Reserve equivalent, except here it's actually an independent uh, body, like, from, like, a institution branch, essentially, of the EU, whereas in the United States it's technically an independent executive agency, so there's a... There's definitely some differences in structure and what are like, and in general, it seems like European Union is a lot more collegial in its approaches to government. But in terms of like fundamental structure, this is like a separate branch of the European Union government. So, um, like I said, you could you could spend days talking about just this, but essentially, we're here for the parliamentary procedure. So all you guys really need to know at this point is that the European Central Bank. Uh, does the sort of economic monetary policy for the union. So when you think of the euro, you can think the European Central Bank. But um, next thing up is the European External Action Service. This is essentially the diplomatic corps of the union. Um, it's headed up by the high representative, who's effectively the vice president of the European Commission. So they're sort of like our foreign service. Um, they are... To me, it's pretty interesting because most of the European Union members have their own foreign services, of course, but then this sort of also operates at a fully European level as opposed to the interests of any one particular state. Um, then we have just just the, as a quick note, these this uh, European Action Service as well as the next few um, things we mentioned aren't necessarily branches, separate branches. They're they're actually potentially part of different institutions under the EU. The, the seven recognized institutions of the European Union are essentially what we listed previously. It's the European Parliament, it's the European Council, the Council of the European Union, the European Commission, the Court of Justice of the European Union, European Central Bank, and the Court of Auditors. Yeah. The the rest of these are just kind of when I was putting out there the, the 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 research for this section, I thought that these were pretty interesting and worthwhile things to just touch on because, you know, 
because the European Union in a lot of ways is a little bit of sort of an amalgamation of, it's not really quite a national entity, it, it's not really sort of just a loose coalition, it's, it's the sort of middle ground of a system becoming a full, a, a more sort of united front. So it's interesting to see what sort of some of these institutions they have. And also the other thing is that because the European Union was created so much closer to our time rather than some of the, say, the United States, um, it has a lot of features which reflect a more developed, like more developments in political theory and political science. So some of them are pretty sort of interesting and maybe are standard now that we think of them, but are kind of interesting looking back at the United States and how it was formed. But um, so the European Union has this thing called the Committee of Regions, and this is, it's more an advisory body, but what it does is that it has local and regional representatives from the member states who come and provide impact opinions, basically, on European legislation and sort of make sure that um, the way that the, at least in theory, the way that the union is acting kind of takes into account the actual sort of feelings of the people on the ground. So I think it's a pretty cool idea. It's kind of the way, it's sort of like a super watered down version of what the House of Lords does today, where it doesn't have a lot of, or really any serious power, but it's kind of there to be like, hey, you know, let's, it's just one more level of let's think about how this is actually affecting people. Um, then we have another interesting feature that um, I, I like is that there's the European Investment Bank. And as you might imagine with a name like an investment bank, basically what it does is it's a bank that's set up to help um, sort of grow the internal development of union members' economies. So it'll help by setting up sort of funding for mid-sized companies and small companies. Um, it might also sort of help get good loans for projects within the union that are going to benefit the unions. Um, member states, not this money isn't coming directly out of like the central bank or anything like that, but it's coming um, out of funds that have been set up specifically for this purpose. And I think it's just kind of an interesting idea. Of, like It's sort of like a quasi-Keynesian economics approach to sort of lifting up the state uh, or at least the, the people, the citizens, of the state by sort of pumping money into companies and helping them try to be competitive and and successful. And you know, I don't know. I I, I like it. I think it's an interesting approach. Um, and then finally, in this sort of rounding out of our institutions, is something uh, that again I think is just a nice feature to have. Um, is the European Ombudsman. Now a lot of organizations will have Ombudsman. Um, for example. Rock, Victor and my alma mater, Rutgers, has one. Uh, basically, what it does is it's an office that exists to hear people's complaints about the rest of the administration and then conduct investigations into that, into those complaints. Um, it also does sort of an annual reporting to the European uh, Parliament. And it's basically just, again, sort of a body that can oversee everything uh, and sort of look for problems and seek them out and try to actually help people uh, sort of in meaningful ways that I think are important to have in, in your government. You have any thoughts, Victor? Yeah, I think an ombudsman is great. I mean, we have a similar institution in inspector generals. We have a similar institution in inspector generals. I said that again because my chair made a noise. Essentially, yeah. Um, European Investment Bank is similar to, I guess, the Small Business Administration of the United States. 
So a lot of these different institutions exist, but they're kind of rolled out into a slightly different structure than we do in the United States. Also, for example, the European Ombudsman is chosen by essentially... Um, so essentially, the European Ombudsman is elected by the European Parliament, and they have the term of office that's joint with the European Parliament. So really, if the system became more controversial or more Kind of, let's say partisan as or more polarized within the United States, this might become a position that maybe doesn't serve its entire role as we would expect. So, but hopefully, this position actually remains pretty strong and actually does provide for good, I guess, um, investigations and complaints and investigates them correctly. So, the next thing that we wanted to go over was essentially the legislative process. This is essentially where we can get down into the parliamentary procedure of the Parliament of the European Union which is what we're here to do. Uh, so essentially, the European Parliament is essentially what you get when you try to convince a bunch of different sovereign states to come together and allow for legislation to be done outside of the controls of those sovereign states, essentially. So there's a lot of, essentially, give in this process to essentially allow the European sovereigns to have some say in the process. And by sovereigns, I mean different countries in the European Union have some say in the process and have them all at least consent to having this sort of say so that so that essentially you have an effective governance of the European Union. So this process will seem quite convoluted and that's essentially of the fact that these countries voluntarily decided to join together and not due to the fact that essentially they just all essentially had to and essentially, the United States, when it created the Constitution, there was essentially really a, a need for the Constitution to be created because the federal government was so weak, they were having trouble, like, essentially dealing it with anything on a foreign relations type of institution. There was no way for the federal laws to be enforced in the United States. So, really, when the founders in the United States came together with the Constitution, there was a lot more of a need to come together as one nation. And I think it's worth mentioning that in a similar vein, when the Constitution was drafted, there was already sort of a federal government. It just was an ineffective one. With the European Union, um, there really wasn't, there's not, a, there's been a pan-European identity, but none of these nations were like ever ruled together. Like all of the, all of the United States was, at least 13 colonies, were part of a single country and they rebelled together. The European states have all kind of, at different times perhaps, been united under different conglomerations, but for brief periods, and there are very distinct identities that are, you know, thousands of years old. Um, but, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. That's great. I, just, I wanted to really... But essentially, unlike most legislative bodies in the world, the European Parliament actually doesn't have any right to create legislation. So, so all legislation is initiated by the European Commission. So, Unlike, for example, Congress or unlike, for example, other sorts of bodies, there's no right to create a law by the European Parliament. The European Parliament is dependent on other entities to approve something before they can actually have a say on something. However, in that vein, the European Parliament essentially has the right to veto any sort of European legislation in most parts. There are some exceptions to that, but in general, the European Parliament has the right to veto 
legislation that goes through what's known as the ordinary legislative procedure, which is what we're going to discuss right now. We might have a few episodes later down the line that may touch upon some other legislative procedures, but in general here what we're talking about is the ordinary legislative procedure, which, based on some counts or other counts, accompanies about accounts for about 80% of the legislation of the European Union. Okay. So, while the Commission has to initiate something, there's a few checks on the right initiative. So, for example, the European Parliament can remove the Commission, but it requires a two-thirds vote. So, the European Parliament does not like the Commission, they would have to remove it. Additionally, there are several different things that a few limited issues where initi the initiative can actually be done by a few different bodies. So, for example, if you want to discuss issues of judicial cooperation in criminal matters or police cooperation, this can be actually initiated by a quarter of member states of the European Union. Other things is the European Central Bank can initiate certain types of legislation. The Court of Justice can initiate very limited types of legislation, particularly concerning establishment of socialized courts, or, for example, essentially just very similar administrative things in relation to the Court of Justice. The European Investment Bank can also initiate things that are essentially related to the European Investment Bank, and this is a very minor not typically used, and then there's a European Citizens Initiative, where essentially European citizens can initiate something, but this is something that the Council has control over. So essentially, even though the European citizens will initiate something, the Council, sorry, not the Council, the Commission can decide whether or not to continue with what the European citizens initiate. And that's kind of standard for a lot of so, like the United States, most states will have a citizens' initiative as well, and oftentimes there's if you get say like enough signatures um, on a petition, then the um, legislative body, in this case, I guess it's the commission, but in a lot of cases, it's the legislature um, will have maybe the right to intervene and look at it and review it. Um, but yeah, it's still, I, honestly, I would say that a lot of these. Uh, Considering that we don't really have an equivalent of a right of initiative, except I guess for tax issues, that in, in our system, I mean, we have the right of initiative in individual states. So, for example, in California, citizens can initiate either legislation, actually, or even constitutional amendments through a petition process. Well, I guess more what I meant is we don't really. So, the European Commission itself has the right of initiative, as opposed to say, like in the U.S., the president can't introduce legislation of his own will, like. Um, the only like the people who introduce legislation in the United States are the Senate or the House, and I guess the closest parallel I can think of to this sort of setup is that the House has to be the people that come up with tax bills, basically, or spending bills. Um, and even that, technically, at least the way that it works, doesn't necessarily have to be that way because the Senate can keep like as we I feel like discussed in a, uh, a long time ago on one of our episodes, the Senate can keep a, a piece of legislation in its back pocket that it got from the House and transform that into its own legislation. So we don't really, I feel like, have this sort of w system where the executive is the person proposing the legislation by and Well, yeah, exactly. In the United States, all legislative power is essentially vested in Congress. This is very different from the European Union. 
process. So, okay. So do you want to talk about what happens once the commission submits its proposals? Sure. So I guess there so there are a couple of things that can happen when the, the commission submits its proposals. One thing is that, as Victor mentioned, uh, there's a lot of, this is one of the spots where the sovereigns can sort of pose a check on the European Union's overall power, because there's a sort of uh, a review process for subsidiarity and proportionality. Um, here, where member states can, they, they use a system of like color-coded cards, but effectively there's these yellow and orange cards, um, I guess you can call them complaints maybe, um, where if the national governments within a set time frame, typically it's about two months, um, see a proposal, they can issue an opinion where they, they say, well, this proposal doesn't comply with the European Union's requirements of subsidiarity or proportionality. And what those mean, subsidiarity essentially basically means that uh, it's just this sort of political theory that says that um, issues, of policy issues should be decided at the lowest competent level of government. So for a lot of times it will mean that if a policy issue is really best handled at a national level, then the European Union itself shouldn't be writing legislation for that. So if enough countries, or rather sovereign nations within the Union, say, we don't think that this proposal should be handled by the European Union itself, then that can be one point where um, legislation is kind of cut off entirely. So, um, in one case, if uh, more than a third, but less than half, of the um, commission of the, of the nation states uh, oppose legislation, then um, this can be a trigger for having the commission have to re-review. So just go through another review process of the proposal, try to see if it can iron out some of the biggest issues that the sovereigns have, and then try to reintroduce things. But if um, more than um, half of the member states think that this proposal is a problem, though, then the commission still has to do this review process, still has to prevent some sort of justification for, okay, well, even though our member states think this is a problem that's violating our rules, there's still a chance that they can introduce it to the parliament, so the commission can introduce the proposal to parliament, but at that point, the European Parliament and the Council can hold their own vote, and if they get enough votes, um, it's, I think, about 55% of the vote, so if they get that level of threshold, they can also say, no, our, our member states were correct. This proposal does violate our, our requirements. And at this point, it can kind of essentially kill the consideration of the proposal further. These processes, they can technically slow down the legislation, but they can't stop it by themselves. There has to be some action on behalf of Parliament or the Council. In general, it seems like these objections are actually quite influential in these decisions because, once again, there's no like polarization essentially like issue that had that we might expect coming from a US perspective. So essentially um, the council does review objections and does decide whether or not to change the proposal in response to these critiques. Additionally, a lot of these parliaments also choose the representatives of the council. So if these parliaments objected to these issues severely enough, they could also just essentially tell their representatives to the Council of the European Union to simply vote against these proposals. So this is kind of like a soft way for the, for 
legislatures to tell the commission to essentially review their proposals if they wanted to pass, essentially. Right. I think that you're like absolutely right. I think that this is just one of the ways, and we're going to see again repeated throughout this process. There's a lot of like the point of this process seems even more so than the United States one to make sure that everybody is on board with what's happening before we enforce the legislation. So there's a ton of opportunity for lots of discussion to be had. Um, and yet, surprisingly, they are, the, the European Union still manages to pass a fair amount of pretty substantial, powerful legislation, which is something that, at least right now, the United States hasn't been doing so great at. Um, yeah. But so we've got so that that's this sort of an intermediate stage, this sort of subsidiarity proportionality review. Um, but the first real, I guess, stage after a uh, after the Commission proposes legislation is that the European Parliament has its first reading on the proposal. Uh, and what this means is that the bill is read out to the Parliament for the first time, and then Parliament kind of the key thing that happens here is like like in our legislative system. This is when the bill is going to be introduced and then put into a particular committee for further sort of study and refinement. But unlike in our system where um, the bill might come whole cloth, like might be drafted in whole cloth maybe, um, here all that the parliament can do at this point is they can't really introduce something entirely for themselves. All they can really do is either accept the proposal without amendments or they can choose to amend the proposal, or they, they could potentially simply not act on it at all, which is effectively rejecting it. Because at this stage, there's not really a time limit for how long the parliament can look at a bill or, or a proposal. But um, effectively, yeah, there are these three options they can do. They can either, at this stage, amend the proposal, they can accept the proposal without amendments, or they can do nothing, which is effectively is a rejection. Uh, Victor, do you want to talk a little bit more about how the committee selection process works? Sure. So basically the parliament's president can assign it to a committee. If there's some argument to what committee should be assigned, typically multiple committees receive this assignment and then they re review their proposal and report jointly. Essentially, in a particular committee, if this legislation is assigned, there's a rapporteur who's essentially a member of the majority of parliament who will essentially be tasked with following this legislation and trying to essentially shepherd through Parliament. Additionally, if a proposal has been reported out of a committee, amendments can also be proposed to this proposal as well. While this is all happening officially in Parliament, at the same time, the Council of the European Union is kind of doing all these things, but informally. Right. And then if the European Parliament either proposes something with the consent of the Commission in terms of amendments, or, for example, the the European Parliament can also propose something without the consent of the Commission of the European Union. Both of those things are possible, but in general, the legislation will only pass if the amendments have the consent of the Commission because of the requirements in the Council of the European Union afterwards. So essentially, once this resolution is passed by Parliament, then it goes to the next step, which is the Council of the European Union's uh, first reading of this legislation. An interesting feature of the sort of reporters that we, we mentioned is that so the U.S. Congress has similar features to reporters. We just I think they're just sort of um, uh, house house and floor managers for bills, I guess, would be the similar parallel. 
But what we don't have in the U.S., but what they do have in Parliament, is this sort of system of shadow reporters, where... Um, well, we do have, like, a minority I guess, leader. Yeah, I guess we do kind of... Type, or, like, a minority ranking member. I, I would say maybe where the biggest difference is, again, because the European Union has a far more political groups than we do, um, there may there's a potential for more reporters to exist, because... Um, so... It just adds an, an extra level, I feel like, of accountability where instead of it just being one person, I want, I was going to say it feels like it adds an extra layer of accountability, but the, the fact is it probably doesn't in practice. It just means that there are more eyeballs who could potentially step in at any time to fill the roles. But I don't know exactly whether or not it promotes more coalition building or more perhaps um, compromise in the initial drafting and sort of marking up process. I, I feel like it might, but I, again... It's hard to know for sure without actually working there. It's coming to though to the sort of the next step, as Victor mentioned, is the Council of Europe's uh, first reading. So here again, although the Council would have been working sort of concurrently during the first reading process of the Parliament, they can't officially take any action on anything until Parliament makes their first action. So Parliament's going to say, "All right, well." we have some amendments on this, or we don't have any amendments, we think this is great, what do you think? And the council at this point is, again, also either going to accept the proposal as provided, given to it by um, the parliament. So this might mean that they accept the, par the parliament's proposal with whatever amendments they had, or they just flat out accept it entirely. Um, and if they do either of those options, then the legislation is adopted and it becomes sort of, you know, law. But if they instead decide, well, actually, we think we need some amendments to whatever you propose to us, then there's the potential for a second reading. Um, and I guess there's some important things to note for this stage is at this stage, still the council also doesn't really have a time limit for its actions. Um, and it also doesn't necessarily like so while the parliament is voting in majorities, the council votes in something that's more of a qualified majority fashion. Um, Although in certain cases, so things like taxation or social security or foreign policy or defense, like uh, big sort of substantial issues, then uh, unanimous consent might be required in the council, um, which is, I think, kind of a big issue because I guess it re reinforces the way that a lot of legislation seems to need to progress through compromise and pretty clear agreement because otherwise unanimous consent would be a difficult thing to gain. So, right. But if amendments are made against the commission's recommendations by parliament, it requires unanimous consent in the council. So that's why uh, typically amendments against the essentially the interests of the commission are very unlikely to take place. Also, I mean, this also kind of prevents the parliament for simply striking a proposal in its entirety and amending it with completely something separate, which is a U.S. Con congressional invention, okay. which I guess we won't see much in the European Union unless the commission is really out of whack and the council really wants to do something with the consent of parliament. Right, which seems unlikely, but who, maybe. And the other main difference, I guess, between the first reading of the um, parliament and the council is the structure of the council doesn't really have committees per se they have working groups or working parties and these are usually made up of the particular so since the the council is mostly sort of experts that are appointed 
uh, sort of by their legislatures. They are experts who might be particularly sort of foreign policy experts. So they're going to work on a foreign policy bill. They're going to be part of that working party. But then there are um, there's a committee within the council known as the Committee of the Permanent Representatives. Um, this is also known as the Co-Repper. Um, and these people are the permanent, as you might imagine, permanent representatives to the European Union. And they're the committee that gets report, the bills reported to. So if the European Parliament has a plenary session and council and committees, the council has these working parties that report to the permanent representatives. Um, that's, I guess, the other sort of terminological difference. There's, again, sort of a limited number of outcomes. Either the council accepts parliament's proposal, at which point it's a law, or the council has its own amendments. And if it does choose to have its own amendments, then the bill is sent back to Parliament for a second reading. Uh, at this point, um, then Parliament is able to, again, either approve those amendments, make further amendments on to those amendments, or at this stage, again, reject proposal outright. Um, so, as you might imagine, if the Parliament approves the Council's amendments, then again, this is, you know, we, we finished, this is the legislation that passed, it gets adopted. But if it doesn't and it wants to amend things, then um, there's a chance that it gets sent back again to the Council. But the interesting thing about this stage is that the rules change a little bit. So in the first stage, in this first reading stage, there were no time limits. People could take as long as they wanted. Now, there is a time limit. So Parliament has about three months. There's a possibility of extension, but generally about three months to consider these amendments. And, and this is what I think is a very interesting feature, if after this time limit, Parliament hasn't taken action, so if they haven't either approved or rejected or, or made some sort of amendments, if they haven't acted, then the Council's amended proposal is taken to be adopted as if Parliament agreed with it. And I think that's a pretty radical feature, at least in my opinion. But I guess it's one way to ensure that legislation, like people have to act on these things. So inaction is taken, I guess, as consent in this system. So another interesting thing about this uh, second reading stage is that unlike in the first reading stage where you could sort of make whatever amendments you wanted, although still confined to the scope of that proposal, here the scope of consideration is related even further. So at this point, um, Parliament can only do the following sort of amendments. Either it can attempt to partially or completely restore um, the proposal to what Parliament's first reading position was. So like if Parliament had a couple amendments that they really liked and the Council had a few other amendments onto those amendments, um, Parliament could attempt to either go back to their original form of those amendments or they could um, maybe change one of the amendments but keep some of the other ones. Important thing to note is during the second reading, whatever the council proposes after the first reading to the parliament for its second reading, essentially, if the parliament wants to reject or amend the proposal of the council, they have to do so by absolute majority of members. So this is no longer the simple majority. Now the council has to act with absolute majority. So do you want to just clarify for the listeners what the difference between a simple and an absolute majority would be then? So yes. Right now, the parliament is 705 members. So that means 353 or more members have to vote in favor of this. Whereas simple majority essentially means that more people vote in favor of something than against something. So there could be, let's say, 500 people present and 
300 of them vote yes and 200 of them vote no, that's still a simple majority, if that makes sense. But not an absolute number of the total number of members of parliament voted in favor of this. So it means that you have to actually get people, like everyone needs to show up, or at least at least enough for an absolute majority needs to show up and vote for you. Um, or in order to reject it. But if, right. but if not, but for example, if you don't reject it by this vote, it, pa- it is considered passed after three months. Right. <laughs> that interesting sort of feature that we were just discussing. Um, so some of the other ways that this consideration is limited are um, you could, they can obviously, and this is kind of encapsulated in the idea of complete or partial restoration of Parliament's first position, but they can attempt to make amendments to reach a compromise position between Parliament and the Council's first positions. Um, and then they can also sort of attempt to make amendments in light of any sort of new facts or changes in legal situations that may have come up since the Parliament had its first reading position. Um, but yeah, so this is kind of, again, I think a pretty interesting feature where everything gets a little bit more narrowed. I think it's particularly interesting that there's an implied, um, acceptance by inaction. I think that's a pretty interesting feature, but so if then, uh, parliament does make some amendments to this proposal, they get the council's first reading proposal back, they make some amendments, then the, the bill goes back to the council for a second reading. And here, again, the council can do essentially either an acceptance of all the amendments that the uh, parliament has just made, or they can themselves again attempt to um, reject them. And so rejecting them, though, is going to start a whole different set of processes called the conciliation process. But still in the second reading stage, Council also has a three-month window to act, um, and at this point, the, also the commission is going to get involved again. Although they're probably monitoring this throughout the entire thing, and they're going to start issuing opinions regarding Parliament's proposals. So whether or not they think that the uh, council should accept them. Now, here's the what one of the also pretty interesting parts is there's a built-in conciliation process. So you may have heard of, um, I guess, are they called, I can't remember if the exact word is conciliation committees in Congress, but we have analogous systems where in particularly in complex um, legislation, conference committees, conference committees, that's the word. So in, in these sort of complex um, bills, we might have subsets of the House and the Senate come together and try to work out a bill that works both sides and they go back to the, each other's sides with, and it just makes negotiation a little bit easier when there are fewer people. And uh, But here, within the European Union, it works slightly different than the way that we do in the United States. Here, if after these two reading stages we haven't reached agreement and councils rejected Parliament's uh, idea, then the President of the Council and the Parliament have to convene this sort of conciliation committee. And this committee is composed of equal parts, um, members of parliament and council members. And they're going to try to come together and agree on mutually acceptable terms that they can take back to a third reading period in both of the um, different chambers. Or they can just completely sort of fail at this, um, at which point the legislation, of course, wouldn't succeed. Um, so this conciliation system, again, this is about a two-month window that they have to try to figure this out. And what they do here, and what I think is particularly interesting, 
is something called trilogues. Um, and trilogues, you may have heard of a dialogue or a monologue. Monologue one, tri- or dialogue two, trilogue three. Three here because there are three com- there are three sort of groups that are going to come together during this process to try to iron out something to make this legislative procedure work or a legislative uh, proposal work. And the three groups, as you might imagine, are the parliament, the council, and then the commission. They're all going to try to come together. Although technically, it's really only the parliament and the uh, council that need to make it work. But the commission also needs to approve amendments unless they want unanimous agreement. Right. So there, there. Of course, that's yeah. So they all kind of need to come together, and then they work on something that's come to be known as a four-column document, which is effective, effectively. And I think this is just on a, a level of like geeky legal work. I think it's a pretty interesting system where it's it's a document where effectively you have three columns of the three different positions of the parliament, the council, and the commission, and then you have a fourth column, which is to represent the compromise uh, system. And I think it's just a cool, like, it's a functionally cool instrument to help make this stuff happen, because then you can kind of see where everyone's getting tripped up, and then you can, can see uh, the potential best change. So... They do this conciliation process, hopefully they come up with something that works, and then it goes to a third reading stage where um, language is mutually agreed upon by this conciliation committee is sent back to the parliament and the council. And parliament has to approve it, and then council has to approve it, and if they can both do that, um, then the legislation is adopted. However, at this stage, there's no more amendment process, there's none of that happening. It's either do you approve it or do you reject it. If you approve it, it becomes law. If you reject it, it dies. Um, so that's sort of the essential system. That's that is the ordinary legislative procedure. You have three reading stages. You have a conciliation in between the second and third one, and at each stage, you're sort of narrowing the steps that the sort of freedom of action that the uh, different parties have to act, and you're tunneling closer and closer to uh, agreement. Um, and just as a final sort of part, the types of legislation that these proposals can actually come out as, there are like three main sort of types of legislation. So if in the United States we have um, sort of laws or bills, we have joint resolutions, we have concurrent resolutions, and then we just have resolutions, and they all have somewhat different effects and it means somewhat different things. Here there are regulations, and these are effectively the general laws. They're binding across all member unions, and they're in the official journal of the union. Then there are directives. These are kind of just broad policy statements or policy goals that don't require official, like, particular action, but they do set a goal and then leave it to the member states to come up with their own legislatures and figure out how they're going to achieve that. And then there are just decisions, and these are kind of like what you would think of in a court, sort of, there are sort of case-specific issues or actions, and they don't necessarily have a union-wide impact. Um, just, just to add, as a sort of like quick analysis of the system, it seems to me that if some politicking were taking place between the council and the commission, if, for example, parliament passes something and then the commission makes some amendments to it with the consent of, let's let's say the council makes some amendments to this issue with the consent of the commission, and then, for example, now parliament has a time period in which it has to vote on something to reject it, and if they don't vote to reject it, it passes automatically. So. What I'm saying is some adept parliamentarians could just simply delay a vote, if it's even possible, and just have something pass with maybe particularly significant amendments that Parliament didn't necessarily approve in the first place. 
Right. I mean, I guess since you're, you're offering your analysis, what do you think of this process as a whole? I mean, I think, at least for my two cents, I think it seems like it shouldn't necessarily... Well, one, it seems somewhat patently undemocratic because the people who can propose the legislation are not really directly representative of the, of the citizens of the Union. They're very much the creatures of the legislatures. I mean, if you look at who's appointed, how the commission gets appointed, if you look at how the council gets appointed, by and large, it's the people who are been elected in sovereign states who are then selecting people. It's not... Well, well then Parliament has to exercise its job to veto any commission. So they get to... Um, they get to, they have to approve by majority vote the commission when it's proposed at the start of each parliament, and probably can just simply vote no until they get a commission they like. Yeah, I guess that's true, but I just I don't know. I, I guess there's an element of that. I wish though, if I could make one change to the system, I would just say that it seems like parliament itself should be able to be the originator of legislation. Although, given the nature of how the European Union was created. I can understand why that's not the case. I could see how sovereigns would want to control a lot of the introduction process. I just think that that's kind of maybe a stumbling block to creating a real sort of relevant... I feel like it'd be easy for people to be like, it doesn't really matter who I vote for in European Parliament because really I should put my eggs into the basket of electing good national legislatures who then can appoint people to mostly important positions. I guess there's also a remnant of the European tendency towards not necessarily having a strict separation of powers between legislative and executive. Mm. Um, so where in most European countries, the executive is also actually proposing legislation that is then adopted by the parliaments because the parliaments are the ones who are elected the government. This is true. That makes that makes some sense. Hmm. I don't know. But on the whole, I also think that it's... Uh, it's a pretty interesting system. There are definitely some aspects that I like. I think, like you mentioned, the the ability to sort of potentially have this inaction, you know, pass a whole bunch of interesting things in the first reading of the uh, council and then second reading of the parliament. Just don't act on it and boom, you've gotten, you know, your way. But I don't know. So do you have any other sort of final thoughts on this? So another thing to keep in mind is that in the council, there is this idea of qualified majority. So what that means is if both of these conditions are met, 55% of member states are in favor. That means 15 out of 27 European states are in favor. And at the proposal is supported by at least 65% of the EU population, then the proposal is adopted. However, if this condition are not met, you still need to have the idea of a blocking minority in order to even even oppose the legislation. So in order to be blocking legislation, you need to have at least four council members and you you need to represent more than 35% of the EU population. This is actually, it's funny that this is the way it works. So um, I happen to be taking a bankruptcy class right now and this is kind of a little there's some parallels to the way the bankruptcy creditors disputes work because for creditors at least in certain cases you need to have a majority roughly of the um claim like the creditors but then also a certain percentage of the actual dollar value at stake uh you need that it's a two-tiered sort of voting system i think it's an interesting way of of 
ensuring, I don't know if I guess I would say blocking majority required. I feel like it's a way that makes sure that majority voice is amplified, if anything. Additionally, it seems like the council considers any abstentions to be effectively a vote against hmm. due to its rules. And I mean, this is how legislation operates, at least particularly through the European Parliament. We might go more in detail about what a Parliament day-to-day session would be, but the way the legislation is passed is, like, at least to me as a non-European, seems quite interesting. And hopefully we can explore it more about in the coming episodes. There are certainly, you can draw some parallels between the United States and the European model, and you can draw some parallels between the European Union's model and its member states. But it is, again, it's just one of these fascinating sort of hybrid creatures where it's not quite what you would consider a traditional parliamentary model where there's a, where it's it's not like the commission is being elected out of the parliament. It's its own sort of creature. But then it also has, like you mentioned, some of these parliamentary aspects where it's proposing legislation as the executive, but I don't know, it's, it's just, fa- like most of the European Union to me, it's this fascinating sort of fusion of a bunch of different styles, and I think, like you said, I, I look forward to kind of getting to dive a little bit more into how it all works in future episodes. Thank you for listening to Parliamentary Procedure with Chris and Victor. Hope you listen to our next episodes. Bye. Bye-bye.